sang about. The same love comes from the same God, um, the same God who rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, the same God that was faithful to his people throughout the entire Old Testament, the same God and the same love that sent Jesus into this world to die on a cross is the same love, the same God that we worship here today and I think that's especially important for us to kind of take note of, because I think sometimes um, as, we, as we're going through a series like this on the life of Moses, um, people that lived 3,500 years ago, we kind of look at their, their situation, we look at their lives, we look at their lifestyle, we look at the way that God dealt with them um, in their day and age, and I think sometimes we can kind of wonder, well, what does that really have to do with us today? And does God really still work like that? Does God, is God still really involved in our lives the way that he was involved in, in their lives 3,500 years ago? I mean, when God rescued um, uh, Moses from the Nile River, does our God rescue us? Um, when God um, delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, when God appears to Moses in a burning bush, when God uh, uh, sends the ten plagues and there's the Passover lamb that we talked about last week, is, is that the same God that we have today? And does he love us the same way that he loves his people, uh, that he loved his people back then? And so I think that's an important concept for us to, to understand. And in order to do that today, I just want to quickly look at a, a verse from the book of Romans chapter 15. Uh, verse 4, where the Apostle Paul, he writes, For everything that was written in the past, all of this kind of Old Testament stuff, all of this history on the nation of Israel and on the life of Moses, all of this stuff that was written in the past was written to teach us. So that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So that through endurance, we gain endurance for this life by looking at the way that God rescued and saved his people in the Old Testament. We gain encouragement knowing that our God is for us, just like our God was for his people 3,500 years ago. And, and that endurance and that encouragement that we gain from God's involvement in the lives of people really just like us 3,500 years ago, that endurance and that encouragement provides for us still this very day hope. As we face trials in life, as we face aging in this life, as we face all sorts of different circumstances that we face in life, by studying in the past what God has done, we gain encouragement and endurance and we have hope to face the future. And that is especially true as we look at this lesson from Exodus 14 today. Um, because as we're going to discover in just a few minutes, the Israelites, um, they are finding themselves in probably the greatest predicament that they ever found themselves in as a nation. And if it's not the greatest, it's one of the top two or three greatest predicaments that they ever found themselves in. And there's a couple of things that we want to talk about with that this morning. But before we get there, I just want to talk about this idea of predicaments, right? That's not a word that we necessarily use all that often. Nobody kind of walks around and saying, I've got a real predicament here. Uh, maybe sometimes, but we have, we have other phrases that we like to use in place of that word predicament. And I wrote a couple of them down, and uh, I actually thought of 16. I won't share all of them with you this morning. Uh, but we use, we use phrases like being in a pinch, being in a jam, being in a pickle. Uh, a popular one, being in between a rock and a hard place. 
We talk about being up a tree or up a creek without a paddle in a corner. Uh, we talk about a sticky wicket, not one that I use all that often, um, but it's out there. Uh, there's a catch-22, you know, we're just not really sure how to handle um, this situation. We're just kind of stuck in the middle, is the way we say it sometimes. And, and we all find ourselves in positions like that in life. Um, sometimes it's through, um, it, it's the result of poor choices that we've made in our lives, and we just kind of have to own that, um, that we're responsible for that, that tough spot that we're in. Sometimes um, it's through no fault of our own, and it's just kind of the way uh, life happened, and all of a sudden now we're in a difficult place in life, and we're just not really sure how to handle it. Um, sometimes it's through decisions and choices of other people in our lives, and, and because of the things that they've decided to do, then, then we end up being in this kind of in the middle, rocking a hard place. What do I do with that? Let me give you a couple of examples of uh, situations that maybe fit in your life. One of them uh, maybe has to do with if you have an adult child, and uh, maybe that adult child, um, you raised them going to church, and you talked about God, and you prayed with them when they were growing up, and now they've become an adult, and, and they're not really under your control anymore, and, and you see that they're wandering from the faith, and they're just kind of drifting. And you want them to come back. You want them to have a strong faith. You want them uh, to trust in God. And you want that for them, but you're not exactly sure. How do you handle that situation? What do you do about that? Because if you say something that might upset them, but at the same time, you know, you, you want to love them and you care about their soul, and so you're just kind of in this, this difficult position, and how do you handle that? For, for some of you, maybe it's a, it's a career um, situation. It's a career issue. And uh, maybe it's, you know, you grew up and you always kind of thought like you'd, you'd work hard and you'd know what was right and you'd go to work and you'd do what was right. And then you got into the workplace and maybe where you work, maybe, maybe the way that it, you get ahead in the industry that you work in isn't the most ethical way. And now you're just kind of in this, this struggle between, you know, I, I know I should do this, but everybody's doing this, and they're all getting ahead because of it. How do, I, how do I handle that situation? Maybe it's a relationship issue for some of you. And you're just not sure how to handle a, a particular relationship issue in your life right now. Maybe it's a financial issue, and you just feel stuck between a rock and a hard place. How do I handle this whole issue with our mortgage, and, and how do we stay ahead? And, and I think for all of us, these are real issues uh, I would guess that for some of us right now in our lives, we feel like we're between a rock and a hard place, and we're just not really sure what to do. And the truth is, is that when we find ourselves in predicaments in life, it has a way of really testing our faith. In fact, Thomas Paine um, wrote about such difficult times in life. He wrote this. He said, these are times that try men's souls. These predicaments in life, they're hard in a lot of ways, but when you get down to it, when you really dig down deep inside, these are times that try men's souls. And they really get at what is at the heart of our belief system. And that's really what we want to talk about today. What is the heart and core of this belief system that we have? And as we're going to see, 
in Exodus 14, that is exactly the lesson that God is teaching the nation of Israel as they are now leaving Egypt and going on with their lives. Now, kind of want to catch you up on a little bit of the history from where we were last week to now where we're going today. Um, last week uh, was the end of a long, long period in the history of the nation of Israel. They had spent 430 years as a nation enslaved in Egypt. Um, forced labor. Um, life was very, very difficult in Egypt. They cried out to God. God sent them a deliverer, Moses, um, calls him through the burning bush. Moses goes back. Pharaoh refuses to let them go. God sends 10 plagues, 10 calamities on the nation of Egypt. And at the end of the 10th one, the sacrifice of the lamb, God rescues his people. And after 430 years, they leave Egypt free for the first time. And now, the morning after the Passover, the Israelites... They've been ready because God told them to be ready. When morning comes, the morning comes, they are now going to march out of Egypt. And as they do that, we're told that they were rejoicing. They were happy that God had rescued them. We're told that the Egyptians loaded them up with treasures and silver and gold. They were kind of giving them all of these possessions. And literally, probably a group of two million Israelites marched out of Egypt. Egypt. No plans on where they were going. No plans on the next meal, right? There's no catering service. There's no McDonald's. There's nothing as they leave Egypt. Uh, you think about the, the um, incredible um, issues of sanitation as two million people are going to walk out into the desert. You think about the, the issue of, of health um, and just wellness as they're leaving. And nobody's got a plan. No, nobody's thought that far ahead. Because all they've known is 430 years of slavery in Egypt. And yet, it, it wasn't as bad as I'm making it out to be because the Lord was with them. And a couple of verses that we're skipping over from Exodus 13, also up on the screen. Exodus 13, verse 18 we're told, so God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. All right? So God is leading the nation of Israel, 200 people. God is the one that is leading them out. Jump down to verse 21. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. So, who is the one that we would say is responsible for where Israel is headed as they wander out into the desert. Who would we say is responsible? God's responsible, right? God's the one that's leading them. He's in charge, and they're just following God. Now, that sounds great, right? Um, wouldn't you love if God were to come into your life as a pillar of cloud and tell you, go here, go to this school, or go to this job, or, you know, I mean, think of, I mean, you just follow the cloud, and you wouldn't have to make any choices. You wouldn't have to make any difficult decisions. You're just following God because there's this pillar of cloud and you just follow him. That's kind of the life of the Israelites right now. And it sounds great. It sounds like that's what we would all want in our lives. And so they leave Egypt. And this is where I want to kind of 
help you understand the geographical setting that they're going to be in. So they leave Egypt. They're kind of in a northern region of Egypt. It's called the land of Goshen, um, kind of the city of Ramses is where they're leaving from. And when God leads them out of Egypt, they head south from Ramses. And they go down to a particular city. They camp there for a little bit. And then God says, all right, I want you to go back north. And the Israelites are thinking, well, didn't, didn't we just come from there? I mean, we're kind of heading back the way that we came, but God's leading. That's where the cloud is going. I guess we're going back north. And in the, in the midst of this going south, camping, and now heading back north, Pharaoh decides that he... Um, wants to go back and pursue the Israelites. He decides that it was a bad idea to let them go, and so he's going to go back and try to capture them, and that's where we're going to pick up in the lesson. But just to give you a bigger picture of this geographical setting, when Pharaoh meets up with the Israelites, they're basically boxed in, literally. To the north, when Pharaoh meets up with the uh, Israelites, to the north is a strong or a, a stone fortress that is occupied by the Egyptians, okay? To the east, there is a body of water called the Red Sea or the Reed Sea, or today called the the Gulf of Suez. Um, So they've got a body of water to the east. To the west is the nation of Egypt. That's where Pharaoh's coming from. And to the south, there's a range of mountains that lead into a vast desert. And so they are, in a sense, they're, they're boxed in. They can't go north because of the fortress. They can't go east because of the water. They can't go south because of the mountains and the desert. And Pharaoh's coming from the west. And who brought them there? Oh, that's right. God brought them there. The the position that they're in, the predicament that they're about to find themselves in, is because God brought them there. And because God wanted to teach them a lesson. So, picking up Exodus 14, beginning at verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, we, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their service. For 430 years, we've had like 2 million people working for us for free. Look at all of the stuff that we have accomplished because we've had them enslaved in our nation. We just lost all of that. And Pharaoh, I don't know if he's got short-term memory loss. I don't know if, you know, if he's just that hard-hearted. I think it is because we're told that in just a minute. Um, he just, I mean, his nation was just destroyed through these ten calamities. Destroyed physically. They lost crops. They lost animals. They lost everything. It's destroyed economically. It's destroyed spiritually. I mean, his country was devastated through these 10 plagues. And now he's like, you know what? We, I don't think we should have let them go. Let's do something about that. Verse 6. So he had his chariot made ready, 
and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. So now you have, I don't know how big this group of the military is, but you have the best chariots, you have all of the chariots, you have foot soldiers, and they're all now coming to pursue the Israelites who can't go north, who can't go south, and who can't go further east. And they're coming from the west. The Israelites, who are not trained for battle, the Israelites who are not equipped for battle, the Israelites who are, are slowed down by this mass of people, they have all of their possessions with them. They're going nowhere quickly. Verse 8. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. Now, we didn't talk about this last week, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about it today, but there's this curious phrase that says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, all right? Um, what does that mean? Uh, if, if you were to go home and you were to read through the ten plagues, what you would discover is that numerous times we are told that Pharaoh hardened his heart. What that means is that Pharaoh continued to reject God, continued to kind of look at what God was saying and saying, I don't want anything to do with that, not going to listen to him, not going to have his involvement in my life. My heart is hard against the Lord. And so Pharaoh hardens his heart, he hardens his heart, he hardens his heart, he hardens his heart, and then God says, all right, Pharaoh, you have been hardening your heart against me. Now, this is a scary thing. God then says to Pharaoh, I have hardened your heart. You continue to reject me, fine. Your heart is hard. Now that's a very scary situation for anyone to be in. That is the situation that, Mos or that Pharaoh is in at this point. So, disregarding everything that just happened to his nation, he now is going to pursue the Israelites. Verse 9. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hithoroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. All right, so now they're camped there, they're stuck there, they are boxed in there, and this is now the predicament that God's people find themselves in. Verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord, right? So at least when they're, they're in this predicament, and as they see the Egyptians coming towards them, they see the dust rising in the air, and this, this group of chariots and troops and horsemen, they see all of this coming at them. At least they, they, they remember to cry out to the Lord. And so the first thing that they do is they cry out to God, God, we need some help here. God, we need you to do something about this predicament that we're in right now. Going on, verse 11. They said to Moses, all right, and I, I love this, you know, after, after you complain to God, what do you do next? Complain about the preacher, right? <laughs> they go to Moses. Um, verse, don't take that advice. Uh, verse 11. <laughs> they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out, you brought us to the desert to die? Would, what, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, this is a total lie. This is totally false. This is the complete opposite of what they actually did in Egypt. But when they're stressed out and in this difficult situation, they'll say whatever they have to 
to try and get around this. And so they say, didn't, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? No, you didn't. Let us serve the Egyptians? No. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. I mean, this is a very real situation. This is a very real predicament that the nation, I mean, they are about to be wiped out, two million of them. They have no defenses. They have nowhere to go. And God brought them there. God led them there to teach them a lesson. A couple of verses back as the Egyptians are coming towards the Israelites, we're told that the, the Israelites, they looked out and they watched the Egyptians coming toward them. They're, they're focused. Their attention was drawn to the circumstances of their life. And as they looked at the circumstances, things did not look good. Has that ever happened to you? You look at the circumstances of your life, and they're difficult. You look at the circumstances of your life, and they're uncertain. And our attention and our hearts, they get drawn to the circumstances of our life. And you know what happens when, when we get drawn to the predicaments that we find ourselves in? Those are times that try men's souls. Those are times that test our faith in God. It happens to all of us. We find ourselves drawn to the uncertain circumstances of our lives. And we think to ourselves, man, um, God, God would never allow this in my life. And then it seems like he did. Or I always thought that God would do this. And all of a sudden it seems like God didn't. I always thought that God was going to keep me safe. I always thought that God was going to protect me. And right now, I don't feel protected. I don't feel safe because of the situation and the circumstances that are going on in my life right now. And so it calls into question my faith in God. You know what I'm going to call that today? That, that type of faith, we're going to call that circumstantial faith. Would you say that out loud with me? Circumstantial faith. When we get drawn into the circumstances of our lives, and we allow the circumstances of our lives to determine our faith in God. And when we can't figure out where God is in the circumstances of our lives, then we call into question God's involvement in our lives. That's circumstantial faith. And all of us, to some extent, all of us have circumstantial faith. All of us get stressed out by the uncertain circumstances in our lives. And circumstantial faith is always, always, always fragile. There's three reasons why circumstantial faith is always fragile. The first reason is because there is, um, is a, a seeming randomness to life. There just is. You've experienced that. It's hard to plan for the future because we don't know what the future holds. There is a seeming randomness to God sometimes. All right? So that makes circumstantial faith 
fragile. Second reason why circumstantial faith is fragile is because we're not very we're not very good at interpreting the circumstances of our lives. We're not very good at figuring out what God is up to in the circumstances of our lives. Let me give you an example. If you were to drop into my life as a parent at certain points, and you were to ask my kids, does your daddy love you? They would reply without a doubt, no, my dad doesn't love me. Well, why doesn't your dad love you? Why would you say that? Because when I went to get shots last week, he held me down, and that nurse came in, and she gave me those shots. No, he doesn't love me. I think he needs counseling. And we as adults, we look at that and we realize that as, as, a, as a parent, that is an example of our love for our kids. But for a child, they don't get that. And in the moment, does daddy love me? No. And we all, we, we all have circumstances in our lives where we're not very good at interpreting whether or not God loves us. All of us, we have gone through circumstances in our lives where in the moment... We have thought, there, God does not love me. God does not care for me. God is not watching over me because of these circumstances that I'm in. And two years later, three years later, five years later, we look back on that circumstance and we think to ourselves, I am so glad that God had me go through that, that time. Well, was it good or was it bad? Well, in the moment it was bad, but ultimately it was good. So if you evaluated God's love for you based on the moment, you would have gotten it wrong because the circumstances were not very good at interpreting circumstances third reason why circumstantial faith is always fragile is because our time frame is oftentimes too short we're looking at a watch god's looking at a calendar and we want you know we lose a job on monday and we think by thursday we better have a new job maybe i'll be gracious enough and give god until next week monday but after that, God, what gives? So our time frame is too short. There is a seeming randomness to life. We're bad at interpreting circumstances, and our time frame is too short. And so oftentimes, we have circumstantial faith where we allow the circumstances of our lives to determine our faith in God. And that faith is always, always fragile. The Israelites, boxed in, got the Egyptian army right behind them. They look at that, and they think, God, what gives? What's going on here? Where are you? Moses has got some advice for them. Verse 13. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see, because that's where your eyes are drawn to. That's the circumstances of your life. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The, the, the circumstances that you see right now, God is going to take that, take care of that. God is going to fight your battle. God is working on your behalf right now. Don't be afraid. You need to, to see what God is up to. You stand firm because you see what God is doing. 
And you need to be still. What that means is you need to have a quietness within yourself. Because you are trusting that God is going to provide a way out of the predicament that you find yourself in. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Fortress, mountains, Egyptians, sea, dry ground. God has a way out of the predicament that they're in. And it's on dry ground. It's on a solid foundation. It's on a sure foundation that two million people can walk through the waters and on dry ground and God rescues them. And they move on. And they go forward. Isn't that what we need in our lives? Dry ground? Solid foundation? A sure foundation to go forward on? That's what faith is all about. Far too often, we allow the circumstances of our lives to determine our faith in God. You know what? The circumstances of your life have nothing to do with your faith in God. Experiences do not determine your faith in God. Because the foundation of our faith is rooted in history. The foundation of our faith goes back 2,000 years. When a man came to this earth, he walked on this earth, he ate, he talked, he slept, he wept. He went to a cross and he died. Three days later, he rose. And he takes away the sin of the world. He takes away your sin and my sin. That is the solid foundation upon which our faith is based. Not circumstances, not experiences. It happened 2,000 years ago, long before any of us was born. God already fixed in history an event that did happen when all of your sin was taken away. That is the focal point of our faith, not the circumstances of our lives. The solid foundation that we all need happened 2,000 years ago. It was accomplished by a man named Jesus Christ as he gave his life on the cross. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Heavenly Father, I don't know where that lands for each of us here today. For some of us, it's a good reminder. For some of us, the uncertain circumstances of life are challenging our faith, maybe in a big way right now. Lord, would you help us all to refrain from trying to interpret circumstances 
and instead to lean our faith up against a person, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross 2,000 years ago. Allow us to go through life with confidence, not because we see you, not because we get better at interpreting our circumstances, but because of what you have established in history, once and for all, your love for mankind. We matter so much to you that you sent your son into this world to deal with our ultimate issue, the issue of sin. And he took care of it on the cross. Bury that reality deep inside our hearts. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the blessings of freedom that we have in this country. Help us all to appreciate this country and the liberties that we have. Keep this nation under your care. Provide and watch over those who serve in our armed forces. And allow our leaders to make wise decisions for the best interest of our country. We also join together in the prayer you have taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.